0: Hello? Yeah, put it through, Alice. It's for you. This must be the call. Phil, put it on the speaker. I want to share this with everybody. (laughs) Good morning. Do you have good news for me? Tonight, I'm gonna pull down your pants and sink my hands into your cute little ass and then give you a tongue bath. I'm gonna start at your feet and slowly work my way up. Hello? Can we ever go home again? Normally we think about that with milestones or youth. Will the ceilings in my parents' house ever look this high again once I get taller? Will my friends act the same way when I get back? Can she ever love me after what I did? The lesson is a bittersweet one. Bitter, because all things will pass. Sweet, because it's all the more incentive to enjoy the moments when you can. There's almost every indication that life after this virus will look very much like the life we had before. But similarly, some things will almost never be the same again. Here's an example. For about a decade, I've gone to Dragon Con, a convention in Atlanta, Georgia. Done live shows there. Stayed up all night talking with friends new and old. Shared homemade liquor handed to me by strangers. 80,000 nerds packed asshole to elbow in a series of hotels in downtown Atlanta on Labor Day weekend. I met my wife at Dragon Con. I married my wife at DragonCon. We might never go to a Dragon Con again. The days following any convention, let alone one as big as DragonCon, the joke is how much you get hit by the con crud, a euphemism for whatever strain of cold or flu happens to be making its way through the gathering. You joke about it. You brag if you avoided it. I don't know anyone who would joke about getting sick after this, let alone put themselves in the scenario to do so. Would the people? And even if the people say yes, will the hotels back that play, knowing they could be the epicenter of another breakout? Things will be different. In early March, one of the first American breakouts of the COVID-19 virus happened in New Rochelle, New York. New Rochelle is a commuter town to Manhattan. Controversially, at the time, the state put them under quarantine. Although New York City has gone on to be ravaged by the disease, and the tri-state area at the time of this recording has produced roughly half of America's recorded deaths, New Rochelle has slightly recovered. In fact, three days ago, those initial 10 quarantine patients were released after showing no symptoms for over a week. I think about what's in their heads. Are they wondering when they can resume their lives? When they'll get on that next train back to work? When work exists again? And when it does happen, when they are on that train, and they're coming back home after their first day back on the job, will they ever be able to forget that this happened? No, Rochelle. Will they ever be able to shake the ghost? Will they ever be able to go home again? By the time we meet him in City Slickers 2, Mitch Robbins is living in New Rochelle, New York. And he's also haunted by a ghost. This is Crystal, a podcast allegedly about Billy Crystal movies from the 90s. I'm Justin Robert Young. No, oh, of course not I'll Hey, just be- uh, Phil listen I'd think twice before going back to that wife of yours that'd be like sticking your balls in a bear trap <laughs> and that would be a bad thing right <laughs> I'm joking it's just a, it's a joke <laughs> well we should go cuz uh, hey look we're in a handicap spot <laughs> <laughs> Gaze in the military. Your thoughts. Well, we'll be back after these commercial breaks. <laughs> Bye. Let's go, boys. <laughs> Good luck. Hope you find lots and lots of gold. City Slickers 2 is bad, but not irredeemable. I honestly sympathize with the writers because it's very hard to tell a story of a a once-in-a-lifetime moment again. If the first movie mattered and Mitch really did discover that that one thing in his life was his wife and kids, do you rob him of that victory? and make this another trip to see if he can find peace on the range again? Is Mitch now in the Curly role as another group of wayward city boys look for enlightenment? Do Mitch's wife and kids hit the trail to connect further with their father? And also, what do you do with Curly? Jack Palance became so much of the story of City Slicker's success, you couldn't imagine another movie without him. McCurley died, and his death was the motivation for Mitch to grow up. The solution is simultaneously the biggest anchor around the final product's neck, and its only redeeming quality. A brother. Then you don't know. No, I don't know. Can I buy a vowel? Your brother's here. Oh, no. Gwen? Crazy Glenn? We are introduced to Mitch's unmentioned in the first film brother played by John Lovitz. He will be the character that needs to find himself amongst the tumbleweeds. But still, you can't immediately have Poochie come in and start barking orders at the plot. You need a reason for Mitch to want to head back west. And we find that in The Ghost of Curly. Mitch has a nightmare in the first scene of the film that, when they were on that original cattle drive, they buried Curly alive. This leads Mitch to seeing Curly's shadow everywhere he looks, and it only becomes more acute when Mitch finds a treasure map in the hat he took from Curly. He even fakes an orgasm to protect him. I'm done. When Mitch and his brother make their way to the scorched earth of Nevada, joined by Daniel Stern's character, who is effectively robbed of all maturity gained in the first installment, they quickly find the other half of our solution a brother. Sorry, Curly. I'm not Curly. I'm Duke. Duke? Curly was my brother. Your brother? Make no mistake, introducing a unmentioned twin to a deceased beloved character is a soapy move. Yet beyond saving Jack Palance for an Obi-Wan Kenobi role where his spirit guide could push our characters to victory, it's close enough for government work. Things parade along in paint-by-numbers fashion as the gang tries to find the gold referenced in the map found in Curly's hat. Gags are recycled. The mom call. He's behind me. Explaining the VCR. Daniel Stern hulking out at the right moment. And there's even the last refuge for comedy. Pop culture references. The first half of the movie is devoid of the same deconstruction of masculinity and age that truly defines the original. There's much more mugging by a post-Home Alone Daniel Stern and less I-love-you-man gut-spiller. And yet it is saved by its central theme. Brothers. Indeed, City Slickers 2 is a true continuation of the first in one respect. The first movie tells you you need to fix yourself. The second tells us that after you've done that, you need to fix those around you. And what better delivery method than a brother you lost contact with? Is he a greedy con artist? Yes. But how did he get there? And can you help now? This is reinforced by Curly's brother, Duke who's an example of what happens if you let this go too far. He hadn't spoke to his brother in decades, and now he's dead. Is that really what you want? By the time that Lovitz dives in front of Mitch to take a bullet from a local bandit, our redemption is complete. Another malformed dilettante is made a man in the dusty sands. Buried underneath a hapless hour of runtime is another poignant lesson of self-betterment. And this time, the main characters are also rewarded with tens of millions of dollars in gold. What do you think of that? Spain? It's got friends. for our disaster of the episode a reminder that even as the light and delightful popcorn fare of Billy Crystal flickered across our movie screens there was still tragedy in the world when it happened I don't think I understood death until Kurt Cobain died I'm 11 years old at my cousin's house in Kendall a Miami suburb and we're watching MTV when we see the news Kurt Cobain found dead in his Washington home. Authorities are saying it's a suicide. You'd find out much more in the days to come. The rock radio station of my youth, Zeta 94.9, had a real hard time letting the 80s go. Well into the late 90s, Rush and Van Halen, not Van Hagar, we're still in regular rotation. But those songs were about parties and girls and whatever the hell Rush songs were about. Grunge. Ah. Now grunge, my sprouting pubescent mind could wrap around. Sadness, rage, disappointment and loss. All of those thoughts a newly minted, hormone-addled sad boy could hear within his own life. I lived for Nirvana and Alice in Chains. Those were the videos I loved on MTV I'd hoped to catch on the Paul and Young Ron morning show. Kurt Cobain died, followed by Shannon Hoon a year later of Blind Melon, and these were seminal moments for me. Later in 1994, one of my first truly favorite albums came out. A posthumous release of Nirvana's MTV Unplugged set. I'd sit alone in my room, lying on my bed, lighting incense, and listening to that disc on repeat. I was very much that kid. It's not her first record. Most people don't own it. Death also were my first memories of school discussions taking a different light. Previous to that, me and my friends would mostly talk about who could beat who up in pop culture and how excited we were to see Independence Day in theaters. Cobain's suicide brought along with it something else a mystery. Kurt's wife, Courtney Love, a rock star in her own right with Hole, became the obsession of Cobain truthers. Sure, Cobain was morose. It was the 90s. That was the fashion at the time. But he'd never kill himself. This was a setup, and there were inconsistencies to be explored. The positioning of the gun was not probable. The suicide notes seemed to have different handwriting on it. Of course, me and my jack-off buddies had no clue what the hell any of that really meant. But it didn't stop us from talking about it. In fact, now that I'm telling you this now, I wonder how these situations play out in our modern world. For example, recent times have seen another wave of melancholy musicians fall to their own demons. Among them, Juice World and XX Tentation pioneers of moody SoundCloud hip-hop both lost to overdoses like the grunge heroes of my youth. But the most established, introspective artist to lose his life to drugs is Mac Miller. And he, too, had a famous femme fatale partner in pop star Ariana Grande. Now, they'd split up before he died, but I can't imagine... The online fracas that would have broken out if there had been Courtney Love-level suspicion around Mac Miller's death for Grande. Kurt's death spawned a documentary entitled Kurt and Courtney by a British documentarian. But that was pretty much it in terms of any kind of reputable media. Today, just think of the endless YouTube videos, message boards, and trending topics. I know that my life was changed when I saw that cult pop culture hero leave. But what of the current kids indulging their newfound understanding of mortality with these online coping mechanisms? Does that make them more prepared? Does it make them more specifically prepared to see the thousands of deaths we're watching right now in our modern plague? It's a question only they can answer. I don't got the heart to pick my phone up when my dad calls. Will he recognize his son when he hears my voice? I put this news against my life, I think I've hit a choice. And I don't know what I'm running from, but I'm running still. I conversate with acquaintances, but it's nothing real. I'm from a city that you hear and think a bunch of steel. So a hundred Mills wouldn't make me sign a fucking deal. Money kills, that the truth is called the City room. Slickers too the legend of Curly's Gold, Bomb. Unlike the original, it cost $40 million and only grossed $43 million. But the only real behind-the-scenes question that I had watching the movie is, where's Bruno Kirby? In both the movies that we've reviewed so far on Crystal, Billy and Bruno are a team. Each time, the high-strung crystal is balanced out by the everyman Kirby. Kirby's character in the original is the reason why the boys go on the cattle drive to begin with. His adrenaline-junkie, try-hard, macho-man attitude is the propellant to reveal the underlying corrosive weaknesses of both himself and his friends. So why did he not get the nod for the sequel? The answer is still kind of a mystery. Even today, there isn't much on the internet aside from a few rando blog posts asking the same question that I'm asking right now. Here's the best we know. Kirby was originally slated to do City Slickers 2, but balked at the script and said he wouldn't do it without rewrites. And so, he was recast by Lovitz. What's more tragic, it appears that there was a personal falling out between Kirby and Crystal, and it's undeniable that Kirby's career never regained the momentum that he had at that exact moment. Consider this. Leading up to City Slickers too, Kirby had made star turns in Good Morning Vietnam, Godfather 2, when Harry met Sally, and City Slickers. This man was a star on the rise. But after whatever happened between him and Crystal, it was nothing. Direct to VHS clunkers and a few television roles before a turn in Donnie Brosco and a voiceover gig for Stuart Little. And so. In tribute to the man, I'm going to read part of a blog entry about a moment with Kirby. I have no idea if it's true, but here it goes. Mr. Kirby was scheduled to appear on Letterman shortly after Good Morning Vietnam opened. I was trying to make ends meet in moonlining as a limo driver in New York City. I'm assigned to pick up Mr. Kirby at JFK and drive him downtown. His plane was delayed for over two hours due to a fierce snowstorm, even by New York City standards. Needless to say, he was relieved to find me waiting for him as he stepped off the plane. All the way to the car, he kept thanking me for waiting. When I opened the car door for him, he asked if it would be okay for him to sit up in front with me. Told him it was going to be a long, slow drive in a snowstorm and that I'd welcome the company. As we were driving away from the airport, he asked me if there was any liquor in the back. Told him there was a bottle of scotch, bottle of vodka, and mixers in the mini-fridge climbed through the divider window and came back with the bottle of scotch and two glasses. I know a very unPC to thing to do nowadays but a very cool guy thing to do then. As we slowly drove through the blizzard into Manhattan we drank scotch and talked about sports but mostly we talked about me. We talked about what I did for a living my pregnant wife our first living in New York in general and life in the cosmic sense. To this day, looking back at the experience, I can only recall him talking about himself just once when he said that he was a little nervous about being on The Letterman Show because Letterman was so unpredictable. When we arrived at his destination, his mother's apartment, he shook my hand, wished me all the best, And gave me a $100 bill for the baby. I drove many stars in those two years. But Mr. Kirby is the only one that I look back on with genuine affection. Beyond that one brief meeting, I didn't really know Mr. Kirby. However, from that one experience, I felt genuine would be the word that describes him best. By the way, Mr. Kirby... If you're out there listening, my firstborn is enrolled in NYU studying theater and acting. Maybe a little bit of you rubbed off on that scene note. That was written in August of 2006, and it was written in tribute to Bruno Kirby. He died that year from leukemia at the age of 57. Billy Crystal was quoted as saying that, the death of his one-time collaborator was a terrible loss. it would be irresponsible for me to speculate on who said what and why they did it. And besides, it's ancient buried history at this point. But it does underscore what we've tried to get to this episode. Relationships are precious. Moments are fleeting. Enjoy them while you can. Because we never know if the world is going to look just like it does right now for very much longer. Next time, Mr. Saturday Night. you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs>